little time talking about um, the point of life. The uh, course guide opens up it, uh, the book with, is there more to life than this? And for years, that was the thing that was on the alpha banner that you would see around town or in newspapers and stuff. Is there more to life than this? Well, we're going we're gonna to start there briefly. We're going to start there briefly. And then we're going to go into the question of who is Jesus, which for me is a, it's a fascinating, Jesus is a fascinating subject. And uh, we'll talk about the reasons why. And we'll uh, spend more time in our small groups talking about the reasons why. But I, I'm, I would say I think that most of us at some time in our life or another have asked ourselves that question. It didn't necessarily may have to come out, is there more to life than this? But what is the point of life? Why am I here? Um, what, you know, what, what in my life, uh, you have a sense you're missing something. Something's missing in my life. You know, we grow up, lots of us, we go to school, we get jobs, we get married, we get divorced, we do all these things. And... At some point, um, at, the end of, at the end of a long day, we sit there with uh, maybe a, a drink in our hand or watching reality TV or wasting our time on the Internet, and we um, ask ourselves that question, you know, what's the point of life? What's, what's this life all about? Um, but I think that we could all agree that at one point or another in our life, we may have felt like something is missing, that there's um, this innate sense in all of us that, that we weren't completely fulfilled with whatever it was we were doing or whatever experiences we had tried in life, you know, Money uh, doesn't seem to do it. I came out of a, a really nice job that paid a lot, and that was one of the things that happened to me. I just realized that money wasn't making making me satisfied. Um, power and fame, uh, those things don't seem to do it. And husbands and wives, I mean, lots of times we, our marriage is not the thing that makes us uh, most satisfied, and certainly our kids can let us down. I'll speak from experience there. Um, so let me tell you how Alpha answers that question, you know, what's the purpose of life? There's been 16 million people, like I said, who've taken this, this course, and I guess we could say now 16 million and 33 or 34 of us have taken this course. And, it, and lots of people have come, maybe like you, with questions like, is this all there is? Or isn't there more to life than this? Well, the Alpha course tries to answer those questions with Christianity as the answer. Um, we explore the person of Jesus Christ. We explore his followers called Christians, and we search uh, through those things and look for answers to those two big questions. Um, a lot of people don't like dealing with the topic of religion, or specifically for tonight, Christianity. They think that, you know, it's a waste of time. I don't want to talk about it, or one of those things that we never want to discuss at the table like politics. Um, and then Alpha, of course, gives a few reasons why, and I think they're valid. The first one is, of course, people think it's boring. I mean, it, it's Christianity or religion or anything. Um, that has to do with faith, it's, it's boring. Or maybe believing in Jesus isn't fun. You know, it seems like it's more fun to watch TV or it's more fun to go to the beach or play golf. Um, Jesus doesn't seem to have any real relevancy in, in people's lives or in our lives. I mean, how could it, right? Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, what possibly, uh, what, what, what did we learn from somebody 2,000 years ago when science every day is teaching us new things? Why do we need to dwell on somebody who lived so long ago? And it's just, like I said, it's just plain boring. Or secondly, maybe they think it's not true. You know, maybe, maybe it might not be boring, but you may think, yeah, it wasn't, it's not true. It was made up. The church has spent 2,000 years fabricating the story. You know, we've all heard the fish stories about how one guy catches a fish and it's this big, and by the time it gets out of the boat club, he's caught a whale. And so Christianity's like that. You know, it's, it's, just, it's the story that's taken on a life of its own. Um, and the Bible was written by men, and so then, of course, it's full of errors. Um, so it's just not true. 
that, that may be another reason. Or still, some people have intellectual objections. You know, they think, well, we can't prove everything in the Bible, and if we can't prove it, then it couldn't have happened. And so people may argue that uh, faith or belief in any type of God is just a crutch. It's for the weak, or it's for the less informed, or for, it's for the dumb people. Um, and maybe you even, I've been in arguments with people uh, about that same subject. But tonight, I, I hope, for at least tonight, we can set some of those, if we have any of those preconceptions aside, we can set some of those aside, and especially the ones about the church. I really like to try to separate Jesus, the man, tonight, from the church. So often, there was a popular book a long time ago, a long time ago, 10 years ago, that was titled, um, They Like Jesus, They Just Don't Like the Church. And it was really a cool book. The guy, uh, Barna, the Barna Group, which goes out and does polls for presidential elections and everything else, they, they did polls about people's uh, sense or temperature of the person of Jesus. And they went around the whole country, and they found out almost to a person, everybody was okay with Jesus. Yeah, you know, even if they didn't believe he was a, a savior or a god, they were okay with, you know, talking about Jesus. They just really weren't okay with the church. So tonight, even though we're standing in a, on a property of a church, I'd love for us to be able to at least set aside our preconceptions about the church. So I want to just look at those, uh, at those three claims, and I want to look at the way Christianity answers those three claims. Um, to the claim that uh, it's boring, uh, Christianity says that um, the, the relationship between Jesus and his followers is, is not boring. It is actually the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus came to earth. Christianity counters that claim of boring by saying Jesus came to establish a relationship between people that would believe in him and their creator, God. And there's nothing boring about that at all. Um, as a matter of fact, Jesus says several times in the Bible, and we'll look at that in a minute, that he was the way to this relationship, that you could not have a relationship with the creator of the universe unless you knew who the person of Jesus was. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so we'll look at that in just a second. Um, secondly, the, to the claim that uh, it's not true or it doesn't matter what you believe, um, I always thought that was kind of funny when people would say something like, um, well, there really is no, thing, no such thing as an absolute truth. I mean, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard somebody say that? There's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, that statement in and of itself is actually a statement of absolute truth, which is kind of comical. Um, because the statement makes you accept it or not as a statement that matters. Um, one of my favorite sayings about faith and truth goes like this. Well, if you need that sort of thing, or if it's good for you, then that's okay. But me, I don't have any need for it. You see, if something really is truthful good for one, then either it's good for all or it's not good for one. Do you get that? If it really is the truth, if it really is the truth and it's good for one person, then it really is good for everybody or it's really not the truth. Um, Jesus says he's the truth. I am the way, I am the truth. And then finally, Jesus makes the claim that he's the life. And this life he talks about is a, is a relational life. And it's actually a life that's based on experience. It's not based on head knowledge. Now let me give you an example of what I mean between experiential knowledge and intellectual knowledge. Um, Reading a book about being married 31 years is not the same as being married 31 years. I've been married 31 years, and I've experienced 31 years worth of marriage. See, one's an intellectual understanding. My son, who's not married, could read it and say, oh, I know all about marriage, and I'd say, ha, live it, right? Or writing a book about war, a horrible thing, and, and going to a war and being in the middle of it as a journalist and writing, writing about the war that you're in. Jesus says that this relationship that, that he's offering 
is one that's experiential. It's not one that's in the head. And so he actually claims that we can know him here and now today. This person who lived 2,000 years ago makes the claim, and we'll investigate that, that we can actually get to know him in the, in the person today in a, in a relationship that puts us back in relationship with our creator. It's interesting to me so many times, especially folks who want to come at Christianity from the, from the head side, that lots of people don't know there were many, many brilliant scientists who were Christians. Um, Descartes, Newton, Locke. Pasteur, uh, Professor James Simpson, who actually developed anesthesia, uh, was once asked of all the discoveries he had made, what was the greatest? And he actually said that the greatest discovery he had made was the day he discovered Jesus Christ. Um, we have a book in our library out there. That's actually a, a shameless plug right now. We keep a library out there of books that uh, are noted in the back of each chapter that we go through. And if you are particularly interested in one of the chapters that we, we talk about up here and then we go to small group on, Look in the back, and if there's further reading, chances are the book is over there in the library. Well, one of the books is over there is by Lee Strobel, who was a lawyer and, and wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times. And he wrote a book called Case for Christ, and he was an atheist. And he said, you know what, I'm going to prove um, historically, as a lawyer, I'm going I'm to use all of, my, all of my studying and all my resources, all my faculties, to prove that Jesus was not who he says he was. And he got to the end, and he actually converted into Christianity because he looked at all the evidence. And it's a beautiful book. It's called The Case for Christ. Case for Christ. So like I said, Jesus makes these three bold claims. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And I want to tell you one story, a personal story, and then I'm going to move into the second talk about Jesus. Uh, for years, uh, I was asked, um, so how do you know you're a Christian? You know, you can say, I, I want to be a Christian. You can say, yes, I accept Jesus. But how, Gary, prove it. How do you know you're a Christian? And I said, well, I can prove it this way. Um, in 1988, I think, the Super Bowl had um, the Cincinnati Bengals and the 49ers, I think. Anyway, I, I remember the Cincinnati Bengals because there was a hometown hero named Stanford Jennings who played for the Cincinnati Bengals and at the time, on the second half, ran the football back the whole length of the field and it was the longest touchdown run in the Super Bowl at the time. And w when that occurred, you could have heard everybody in Somerville screaming and yelling in front of their TVs because everybody, of course, was his best friend at that moment. We're like, oh, I know him. So anyway, I was at a Super Bowl party. I was at that Super Bowl party. And that particular Super Bowl offered at halftime the chance to see it in 3D. Now, this is long before the cool TVs that we have now where you wear those glasses and watch 3D. Back then, in order to watch the halftime in 3D, you had to peel off from the back of a Tostitos bag a cardboard set of 3D glasses. And these are the old cheapo kinds with the red lens and the green lens. Everybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? Those? Okay. So you, what you did was you got your, your drinks and your, and your food and you got your glasses and you put them on at halftime and you could watch this show in Tampa, Florida, wherever it was on your television. It was 3D. Well, I didn't get the glasses. And I was sitting there at halftime chatting with people. And um, I noticed that the people in the room were moving. They, you know how, how you react to a 3D movie or something? I mean, you, you, you're in the movie. You're, you're moving, your head's bobbing. You're, and I thought, oh, come on. It, those stupid cardboard glasses cannot possibly make that much difference. I mean, because it was a pretty cool show. I mean, the planes flying over. I mean, but I, I, so I said, G give me those glasses. And I put them on, and, and they looked stupid on my big head. And I, I remember sitting there, and I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, there was so much more going on that I never saw. I mean, the colors, the, the, the way, the depth. I mean, the, thing, the singers. And, and I thought, oh, man, oh, man. I am... I've been, I mean, it was a great show, but I really was missing about half of it without these glasses on. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Because I can remember my life before 
I had my 3D glasses on. And it was great. And I've seen babies get born, and that's amazing, and see the Grand Canyon, and it's beautiful. And you, I mean, there, there's so much about life that you can appreciate its beauty. But with Christ, it begins to look vastly different, and it begins to look much deeper and much fuller. That's the good news and the bad news. The good news is it makes the good things good. The bad news is it makes the pain and suffering worse. I wish I could say, oh, no, you join, you know, join a church or become a Christian, and all your problems are solved. It's just the opposite. Um, life becomes fuller and richer and more meaningful, but it doesn't get any easier. I would actually argue it gets a little tougher. So that's how I can prove, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I am a follower of Jesus. Okay, so who was this guy that I claim to be following? Who was this guy, Jesus? Um, look in your course guide. Go to page 8. It's actually a fascinating talk, and I get lots of, lots of feedback from people who've been in the church their whole life and people who've never stepped foot in a church. I will probably just bore you to death, but I'll take you through the book because I think it does a magnificent job. Notice on page 10, after you get through the flashy, glitzy part, the first point, that he existed. Do you see that? Well, the point the book is making is there were historians from about 50 A.D. to 200 A.D., and their names are listed there, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, who all have written about the person of Jesus Christ. These are outside of the Bible. These are other books that were written or other stories that were written by people who were not claimed to be Christians. So they validate, at least one way, that there was this person, there was a man named Jesus who walked the earth. Um, the evidence in the New Testament, which is the second point, is that what you have in the New Testament are four Gospels. There are four books in the New Testament, and you can look at them in your small group, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of them, they believe, was written by an eyewitness. The other three were written by people who knew eyewitnesses. And so these books were written very shortly after the life of Christ. They weren't written hundreds of years later. Now, within those Gospels, this is what we know about the person of Jesus the man. Um, he was fully human. Look in your Bible on page 791. I'm going to grab one. So to the argument that he didn't exist, the people that saw him or talked to eyewitnesses would say, on page 791, John 4, 6. John 4 there is on the right, and if you bring your finger down, you can see 6, and it starts with Jacob's well. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. He was a human being like you all are right now, tired. <laughs> it's a long day. You've been at work. You've been doing children. You've been doing whatever you've been doing. And so he had the same, um, he had the same experience in this life that you've, you've had. Jesus had human emotions. If you flip to Mark on page 753, go back to the left to page 753. Mark was believed to be or is believed to be the first gospel that was written sometime around 70 A.D. So Jesus died at 33 A.D. This was written about 37 years later. Um, Mark 10, verse 21. I love this because it's what it's all about. It says, um, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This was a young man that he met on the street who came up to ask him some questions. So Jesus was tired as a man. Jesus knew love as a man. 
And then finally, um, go to 763. Just go 10 more pages over. Jesus had parents, and he was obedient to them. He had earthly parents. Luke 2.51. It's the last line right above the big three there. Page 763. Why were you searching for me? I'm starting at 49. He asked. This is Jesus speaking. Didn't you know I had to be under my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is his parents. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, his mom and his dad, and was obedient to them. Jesus was obedient. He had parents like we all have had, good or bad. And Jesus was obedient to them. So according to the Gospels, the four books that were written right after Christ's death, he was fully man. He had the emotions, he had the, um, the experiences, and he had, uh, yeah, he had the emotions and experiences of a human being. A second real important point about the proof or the, eth- the, 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 the truth that Jesus was uh, a man uh, falls under what you see on page 11. This is what supports actually the Gospels, because one of the things we t- I said a minute ago was that the Gospels were written by men and so therefore potentially infallible. And they were written so long ago, and they've been written, rewritten so many times, aren't, isn't there probably a lot of errors in the Bible? I mean, couldn't we just say reasonably that if we started writing a book today 2,000 years from now, it probably wouldn't be the same thing? Well, this is an interesting little chart over here. And what it tells you, and I'll, I'll summarize, is that one of the ways historians prove the uh, factuality of a document is how many copies were written of the document that match and how quickly was the document written from the historical events, okay? So, um, look at Herodotus. That's, that's the work or the book. It was written, they believe, sometime around 488 B.C., okay? Or to 428 B.C., so 500 years before Jesus. The first copy they have of it is 900 A.D., so that's about 1,400-year span between when it occurred and when it was written down. So 1,400 years of oral tradition, okay? Thucydides. Uh, virtually the same thing, 460 B.C. to 900 A.D., again, another 1,300, 1,400-year span. Tacitus, 100 A.D., was written, the book itself was written in 1,100 A.D., so that's about 1,000 years between when it occurred and when it happened. The Gaelic War, same thing, you see about 950 years. Anyway, look at the last one, the New Testament. Um, the first copy, they believe, was written sometime between 40 and 100 And remember, Jesus, if he died when he was 33, that would put him seven years short of this date. Um, The earliest copy they have, the earliest manuscript, is dated less than 100 years from that point. And then presently, they have 5,000 copies that date themselves back to no later than 300 years. So there are an enormous amount of copies about these books that we have, these 66 books, that occurred very close to the time of Jesus rather than these big 900 or uh, 950 year gaps. I, I, before I took Alpha, I never knew that. I mean, it's one of those things people come up to me all the time afterwards and say, that was fascinating, I didn't know that. So anyway, that's the first part. Now I've got four and a half minutes <laughs> to get through what Jesus said about himself. And you can take this up a little bit in more detail when you get in your groups if you have time there. We're a little, always, the first night always gets out of, gets out of hand in terms of time. Um, on page 12, you notice, and there are plenty of quotes there, scripture quotes. Jesus says that I, he is who he says he is. He claims to be the bread of life. He claims to be uh, a person who has been sent by God. He claims to be um, 
the person that if you have seen him, you have seen God. That was an amazing claim. Um, and he claims to be, the last one right there, claims humanity's supreme love. He claims this new supernatural love that people have a hard time understanding. It's not a love between flesh and flesh. It's a love that existed before time. And Jesus talks about this, this supernatural love as if he was there when it happened. And it causes lots of problems in his life, the way he describes what love really is. Um, secondly, he, um, he claimed to be able to forgive sins. So if I offend Steve tonight by taking my fork and stabbing his chocolate cake and eating it, um, if Jesus were sitting there, he's recorded as saying, Gary, I forgive you. Well, I didn't do anything to Jesus. Why in the world would he be forgiving sins to people that hadn't sinned against him? Well, Jesus' claim was that all of the sins of the world had been, had been done against him, that he was the one who had come to forgive all of those sins. And so in a sense, when we sinned and anybody sinned, they were sinning against him, and he had the power to forgive that. It was an amazing claim, and it caused the religious leaders of the day to scratch their heads. That probably caused them the most problem, was this claim that he kept making that he had the power to forgive sins. And he also said that he would come to judge the world. He says at one point, that's not why he, that's not why he walked on the earth in the beginning, but he, he claims that he'll come back and judge the world. Another problem for the religious people of the time. Um, and then he makes these very direct claims, which ultimately lead him to his crucifixion. Uh, he claims to be the Messiah that Israel's been waiting on for 2,000 years. Um, he claims to be the Son of God, which was blasphemy at the time. It still is. Um, and he claims to be God in the flesh, which really, really, I don't think people at that time had a paradigm in their head, a construct in their head. The Jewish um, religion was a monotheistic religion. So it believed in the one true God, Yahweh. And so there was this fleshly man now walking around who not only claimed to be the Messiah, who not only claimed to be the Son of God, but claimed deity for himself. And that really set the authorities on edge. Look at the quote by C.S. Lewis on the next page. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's, it's powerful. And then, and then I think we'll... Now I want to get to resurrection. So I'm going to read this quickly and then talk resurrection. C.S. Lewis, um, early 20th century writer and theologian, said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, like I just went over, he would not be a great moral teacher. Lots of people say, oh, I believe he was a good teacher, he was a good philosopher, but he wasn't a god. Lewis goes on to say, he wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he writes. Either Jesus was and is the son of God or else he was insane or evil. But Lewis goes on, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we're faced with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was and is exactly what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. To Lewis, it seemed clear that he could neither have been insane or evil, and thus he concludes, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Uh, I love that. You, you, you can either say yes or you can say no. I was in business with a guy 25 years. He's still an atheist. And he just said no. He just said, I don't believe it, Gary. I don't believe it. And the thing he doesn't believe is on the next page. He doesn't believe the resurrection. He doesn't believe that a person died and then came back to life. He just can't swallow that. Um, actually, I kind of appreciate his honesty. He doesn't, I mean, he'll talk about Jesus all day long, but he won't go any further. It's all stuck in his head. And we're still great friends. 
But let me just take you through a couple pieces of evidence about the resurrection, and then we'll break and go into our small groups. Um, one of the things, one of the theories, or there, there, there are four there, is that Christ wasn't really dead. That They took him down from the cross, which was a form of torture. It wasn't necessarily a way to kill people, but ultimately by being left up there, you died. But that he wasn't really dead. They took him down. He was still alive. They put him in a tomb. He got better. He made his way out past the rock, and he went to live somewhere else in the world. Uh, and his disciples said, oh, he was resurrected. Uh, the second theory is that the disciples stole the body, that these men who had been following Jesus had it was in their best interest to promote this religion that Jesus had started. And so the best way to do that was to make sure that what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. So they rush in and they steal his body. Uh, the third one is the authorities stole the body. That's the, Romans, the Roman government. And the fourth one, which is even crazier, robbers stole the body. I don't know why people steal dead bodies, but that's one of the theories. All of those theories have one small problem, and that is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there was a large stone in front of the tomb. And it would have taken a lot more than just a few people to get the stone out of the way, and there were guards there. There, there are written evidence of the guards being posted at the tomb. So the whole idea of stealing um, Jesus' body doesn't hold up for me. Um, there's also the evidence in, in the Gospels that Jesus appears to people after his resurrection. He appears in the flesh. He eats with people. He um, stands by the seashore. There are at least, like the book says, at least 11 different occasions where 500 or more people actually saw Jesus in a period of six weeks. And then the one that sets the best for me in terms of proof is not only the immediate effect that these 12 men, uh, who, or 11 men, who were present with Christ went out and started this new church, if you will, but the effect it's had down through the ages that the church continues to this day. It's unlike anything else. I mean, for 2,000 years, we set our watches by it. And it's an amazing thing, this one man in Jerusalem, in the backwaters of Palestine, this effect that he's had on our history, whether you believe in him or not. Um, those, are the, those are the hard and fast things that I like to think about. Okay. You've got 30 minutes to get together in your small group, the same groups that you met for dinner with. And you're going to get some icebreaker questions and a few uh, housekeeping things. And then you'll have some time to talk about what I talked about tonight. And so thanks again. Uh, next week, we have the talk, Why Did Jesus Die? It's chapter two in your book. We'll only do one, one section next week, chapter two. So thanks again, and I'll, I'll see you next week. I'm in group two. Oh, thanks, Steve. That's why you're here. And I screw this up each time. Uh, group one will be here. Who's group one? Raise your hand. Everybody remember who's group one? Group two will be back there. Group two, Susan, Dawn, okay. Group three, let's go up here. Is that Anna? And then group four, the newly formed group four, uh, Steve Gardner and I will be back over there in that corner. Okay? Good. One, two, three, four. Break. Oh, restrooms. The restrooms are in there, and there's also two this way. If you need to go to the restroom, if you need a refill of water or whatever, have at it. <laughs>